0: Welcome to episode 48 of Bookum Dano, an old Hawaii Five-O podcast. I am your most temperamental host, Kristen Haas, a.k.a. Kiki Writes. We are very quickly coming to the end of season four of Hawaii Five-O. And in this episode, I will be talking about episode 18, Skinhead, and episode 19, While You're At It, Bring Me the Moon. As per usual, apologies for the background noise. There's somebody watching YouTube videos incredibly loudly in the next room. They're also talking back to the YouTube videos that they're watching. So I'm going to do my best to avoid the most intrusive parts of that while recording, but it's a losing battle. Also, major, major trigger warnings for the first episode I'm going to discuss Skinhead. The case is a sexual assault case. So the episode itself is pretty upsetting and I can't avoid or the discussion of it. I'm going to minimize it as much as possible. And because our victim is Asian, there's also some good old fashioned racism thrown in as well. So definitely prepare yourself if you haven't watched the episode yet, or if you're going to listen to the episode discussion, make sure you're in the right mindset. So keep that in mind going in. Let's go to Hawaii.
1: see anything but the other bartender says he saw a skinhead in there and saw him try to pick up a girl so i showed him a photo of miss kayama and he said it uh, could have been her that place doesn't exactly have the biggest light bill in town it's pretty hard to get a good look at faces yeah any decent description of this skinhead practically the same as hers big strong bald as an egg anything else i showed miss kayama the mug photos nothing no i.d I want him. I want this guy. I've heard a hundred different reasons for murder, but when a man beats a girl like that and rapes her, there's only one reason. He's turned animal. He's gone rabid. Now we're dealing with a... We're dealing with a mad dog, and I want to nail him and put him away before he attacks somebody else.
0: Season 4, Episode 18, Skinhead. Air date... January 25th, 1972, directed by Alan Reisner. This is his first of 13 episodes. Story by Will Lauren. This is his second of two episodes. And teleplay by Alvin Sipinsley, This is his second of 12 episodes. There's drinking and dancing happening at some bar. A gas station attendant sits down next to a bald guy named Kenner and tries to start a conversation. But Kenner tells him to get lost. They both see a pretty Asian woman walk in, check the payphone, and then sit down. Kenner stops the guy from going over to her, making his own move. He asks to buy her a drink and then gets a little too handsy, but she doesn't speak to him. The payphone rings and she runs to answer it. Kenner makes a play for her again after she hangs up, and she again rejects him. This time he gets racist and she hits him with her purse. It should have had a brick in it. He chokes her and calls her a racist slur. The bartender and the owner witness this and almost do something, but the gas station attendant intervenes, allowing for the woman to escape. Kenner follows her out, attacking her in the parking lot. She runs, but he chases her down, chokes her, and knocks her unconscious, which the attendant witnesses. Five-O rolls out and interviews the victim, Nora, at the hospital. Her boyfriend, who she was supposed to meet at the bar, found her. This is the fourth such case in six weeks, which is why the governor wants 50 on it. The doctor says Nora was severely beaten and sexually assaulted. Nora tells Steve that she didn't know her attacker, but he was bald. Steve asks if she resisted, if she fought, and she shows him her hands. Hell yeah, she did. 50 finds evidence of the attack outside her car and where she was found, including her broken nail and footprints. Che got chest hair and tissue from underneath Nora's nails, the blood type of which matches blood at the scene from the attacker. They also have soil and fabric samples. The owner claims he didn't see anything, but the bartender says that he saw a skinhead type try to pick up a girl that might have been Nora, but they have lousy lighting so he can't be sure. Nora didn't ID any of the photos that Danny showed her. Steve is adamant about catching this guy. They check out the local military installation, which has a host of skinheads that potentially match the attacker's description. Oh, look, there he is. Kenner falls in line with the rest of the soldiers they their order to unbutton the top three buttons of their shirt for the 5-0 inspection. Our guy is forced to show off his scratches. Kenner claims that he fell into a hedge, knocked himself Lulu, and had to be helped back to his bunk by a buddy, which is an amazing story that the buddy backs up. But Steve isn't satisfied. As he looks at the guy's service record, Kono brings in the guy's clothes. Oh, hey, they match the clothing we're looking for. Even though the bar owner doesn't pick Kenner out of a lineup, the bartender does. Nora comes in and immediately IDs him too. But state's attorney, John Manicott, is worried because the boss says it never happened, but the bartender did. He says the physical evidence isn't enough. Steve needs to find the other customer, the gas station attendant, as a witness. Steve goes to talk to the owner, who maintains that he never saw anything, and in fact, he's pretty sure the bartender was drinking on the job, so he fired him. Steve understands that what the owner is really concerned with is his business taking a hit because something happened at his place, but Steve is willing to make sure his business takes a hit by stationing an officer in the bar and writing up every infraction he, that he sees. And even if nothing happens, he's more than willing to go before the licensing board with his liquor licenses due. The owner finally admits that he saw the conflict, but as far as he was concerned, once they left, it was none of his business. He says the other customers was wearing a blue shirt with the name Chris stitched on it gas station style. They turn it over to the computer to find a gas station attendant named Chris, and they find nine. Chris Chase is working the closest gas station to the bar, so they talk to him. But Chris is 17 and a half, and he's never been in the bar. However, Luke Leonard went off shift that night and needed a clean shirt, so he borrowed Chris's. In the judge's chambers, Kenner's appointed attorney asks for a trial without a jury. The judge is fine with it and advises them that they'll set a court date. Kono lets Steve know that Luke is downstairs. When Kenner and his attorney come out of the judge's chambers, he asks Steve if he looks like the kind of guy who has to hit a chick. Yes, you do. Besides, Kenner can't understand what all the fuss is about, considering the victim isn't even white. Kono rightfully loses his shit, but Steve reins him in. He wishes the attorney good luck with his shithead racist client. Kenner sees Luke in the rotunda and tells the attorney that he can alibi him, so he should find out who he is and where he lives. Naturally, this is for nefarious purposes because Kenner then goes to Luke's place and tells him that if he doesn't lie on the stand, he'll kill him. Nora testifies at the trial, and the defense attorney uses the tried-and-true method of using her sexual history against her, as well as questioning whether she was actually beaten before or after the, quote, intimate act. When Luke gets on the stand, it's revealed that they know that Kenner paid him a visit before the trial. Forced to tell the truth, Luke says that he saw Kenner in the parking lot covered in blood, and Nora, unconscious on the ground, also bloodied, but when Kenner saw him, he took off. His testimony is enough to bury Kenner, but there's something about the whole thing that troubles Steve, and he's going to figure out what it is. This is a tough episode to watch, and I'm going to be fully 100% transparent here. I only watched this episode once for the podcast. I tend to watch episodes at least twice, but in this case, I wasn't going to make myself It is an unpleasant watch for me. That does not mean that it is not a good episode. It is a good episode. And narratively, story-wise, it's actually quite good. There's a really great twist towards the end. And I like the setup of the entire episode, but it's really hard to watch. It's just very unpleasant. It's unpleasant, upsetting subject matter, and it's a hard one to watch. So I'm going to try to go through all of the sexual assault stuff first and the trial stuff first just to get that out of the way. So from the very get-go, we know that Kenner is a piece of shit. He is rude to Luke, the gas station attendant, when Luke tries to engage him in conversation. He comes on to Nora, immediately gets handsy with her, and then gets racist and violent when she rejects him. Now, the thing is, is that he is a skinhead, so apparently in more ways than one, but he's in he's in the army, he's in the military, and they make them shave their heads, like, completely. This is not buzz cut. We are talking straight bald. Took a razor to it. The thing about that, when white guys do it, it's like having a mustache. There's only a few white guys that's going to look good on. And it it does not look good on Kenner. It makes him look more menacing. And considering he's already a piece of shit, you know, it's really enhancing that aspect of his personality. So after he, like, starts choking her out at the payphone in front of a bunch of people, and Luke, the gas station attendant, runs over and breaks it up faster than the bartender or the owner gets over there like, it's just amazing how far they let it go. He's choking her out in this establishment, and you're just kind of like, should we intervene? Yes, hit him with a bar stool. It's fine. No one's going to complain. So Luke intervenes. Nora is able to run outside. Kenner follows her, and no one really thinks, I guess, to go outside with them. Luke does, but it seems to be under the pretense of smoking a cigarette. It's I don't think he was really following her to make sure that anybody was okay. So we see Nora get to her car. Kenner pounces on her. It is a a bit of a fight. He rips her blouse. He hits her. He shoves her in the car. She's able to kick him and get away. She runs a short distance before he's able to, to catch up with her again. And again, he chokes her out. He hits her. He knocks her unconscious. So we don't actually see the, the sexual assault part of it, but the attack on her, the physical assault on her with the ripping of the blouse and the, the choking, it tends to ha- it has kind of a sexual connotation to it. So we know what's coming. So when she ends up in the hospital and A talks to her, we're not surprised to find out that she's been sexually assaulted, especially given K- Kenner's behavior prior to this. And this is where the upsetting part really kicks in, at least for me, because as much as Steve goes on about he's going to catch this guy because he's an animal, he's gone rabid, he's not going to let them get away with this when when this sort of violence happens to a woman, he's not going to let that slide. These people need to be taken down. He still asks her in the hospital, did you resist? Did you fight back? Because even though this would be considered a quote-unquote textbook sexual assault, this is what people are thinking of. This is what they mean when they talk about sexual assault. A random stranger violently attacking someone. Steve is still asking her if she fought back, if she resisted, because anything other than that would suggest compliance and consent. Because I don't think he's necessarily entirely asking her for forensic evidence. What he might she might have under her fingernails. I truly believe that he is asking because if she did not resist or she did not fight back, then the court is going to look at that and go, well, she wanted this. She asked for this. And that still happens later. Because it's the tried and true method. We are 50 years past the airing of this show as of the recording of this episode. And we still have defense attorneys bringing up a rape victim's sexual history the the defense attorney says well you have been intimate with your current boyfriend you were intimate with prior boyfriends so why are we saying that you weren't consensually intimate with kenner and goes so far as to say perhaps you have reversed the order of things that you were intimate with kenner first and then he beat the shit out of you like that's somehow better But the, but this, the whole thing hinges on the fact that the sex was consensual and he uses her sexual history against her. And that still happens today, which I think is what makes it at least for me. I mean, aside from, yes, obviously the sexual assault is very upsetting, but we don't really see it. It's the treatment of the, of the victim afterwards. And I think it's so upsetting is because we have not evolved past that point. It is still the only crime that we are going to immediately doubt the victim and treat them like they have an agenda, like they're lying, like they're at fault. People who do not lock their cars and have their cars broken into or stolen are treated with more respect than a rape victim. They are not considered to be asking for it, but a woman existing is always asking for it. So that's, in. that's all very, the whole thing is very upsetting and it's very unpleasant. We also have this portion when the owner doesn't want to admit anything that ha- happened because he doesn't want to hurt his business. Fine. We have the bartender. We have Nora's ID. We also have a bunch of physical evidence. So we have his blood and tissue under her fingernails. We have scraps of his shirt at the crime scene. We have footprints at the crime scene. And yet Manicott is like, this isn't enough evidence. You need the owner to flip and you need this mystery witness to come forward because he knows that unless you don't have like a mountain of evidence, a pile of evidence, they have convicted people of murder for less than what they have right now. uh, You're not going to get a conviction. Because it ultimately, no matter what, boils down to it. he said, she said. And even if you do have all of the evidence and even if you do have witnesses, which we have seen as recently as five, six years ago, it still doesn't matter. Even if they get convicted, they're not going to get shit for a sentence. So the entire legal investigative aspect of this is just straight up horseshit in terms of any kind of satisfying justice. As the audience particularly, because we know we saw this. We saw him attack her we know and his bullshit alibi story. He should just go for jail for that because this dude and it, it plays so much differently when you, when you hit the ending part and you hit the twist at the end, that this dude, seriously, his story for the scratches on his chest was that he fell into a hedge and knocked himself silly.
1: So you fell over a hedge, not on a hedge smack into it. I was lying there right on top of it. You don't believe me? All right, ask Perkins. He pulled me off of it. Go on, ask him. I already have. Perkins said that you fell on a hedge out like a light, that he pulled you off and helped you to your bunk.
0: Okay, I guess that wraps it up, huh? This military man who's very big on masculinity chose to say he injured himself by falling into a hedge. He should go to jail for that. That is a terrible story. And I've actually researched a murder in which one of the the, uh, men tried for a murder actually did fall into a hedge during the commission of the crime. And I'm still offended by this particular story. But we have all this information and we know and what it looks like it's going to be once we track down Luke, once five five zero tracks down Luke, it looks like it's going to be an intimidation thing. Because Kinner witnesses Five O talking to Luke. And this is after he decides to show himself to be a racist piece of shit to Steve and Kono. And he, Steve should have left Kono pate that man's liver, but decorum. Anyway, what really is telling about this is that he is re- making these remarks about why are we kicking up such a fuss because she's not white. And his attorney is Asian. And that's part of the reason why Steve kind of looks at him and goes, yeah, good luck with this. Because he is a racist piece of shit and he doesn't even like you. But they see 5 talking to Luke in the rotunda, and that's when Kinner says.
1: That was McGarrett. The one in the gray slacks, he can alibi me. Who is he? I don't know his name. But he was at the place that night. We had a beer together. He knows what happened. Well, I'll find out from McGarrett who he is. Defense of every right to that information. Yeah. You find out who
0: he is and where he lives. He finds out from the attorney, obviously where Luke lives and he goes and talks to him. And it looks like it's going to be an intimidation thing in that he goes and says, listen, if you don't tell the story that I want you to tell, I'm going to kill you pure and simple. And Luke takes that seriously, apparently, because he gets on the stand and he's very hesitant about telling his story. Now, it looks like this is going to tank the case for the prosecution. Out of fear for his existence, Luke is going to lie on the stand and that's going to find Kinner acquitted and then it's going to proceed from there. That's not what happens. What happens is they get word while Manicott is questioning Luke on the stand 5 gets word that Kenner had been over to Luke's house and visited him. They relay this to Manicott. And so Manicott confronts him on the stand about this. Now he's on the stand. So even though he was going to perjure himself, he chooses not to in this moment, because he's confronted with evidence that if he does go ahead and lie, they have evidence that he's lied. So he tells the truth. He said, yes, Kenner came by, said if I didn't tell the story that he wanted me to tell, he was going to kill me. Here's what I saw. And he says that he saw Kenner attack the girl, but not sexually assault her. Only that he saw the girl unconscious on the ground and bloodied, that he saw Kenner bloodied, and when Kenner saw him, he took off out of fear. Understandable. He can give rather adequate, threatening looks. And so Kenner is found guilty, as well he should be. However, an interesting thing happens after this. Steve notes that Kenner is out on bail pending sentencing. And Luke, who has had his life threatened and did not go through with Kinner's plan to have him perjure himself, is going about his existence like nothing ever happened. Steve finds this curious, because if this guy was willing to perjure himself to preserve his life, he would think that Luke would be in hiding, or on a plane to the mainland, or trying to some in some form, put distance between himself and Kenner because if he was so concerned with Kenner making good on his threat, there is nothing stopping Kenner from doing it now. He's already going to jail. And yet he doesn't. And so this sets off Steve's spidey senses. And he starts looking into the case a little further, particularly with Kenner. So Kenner had previously served in the military. And was honorably discharged. He had a fine service record. There were no incidents. And he was out of the military for a while. And then he went back in. Which is unusual. And there was speculation that maybe he couldn't make it in civilian life. But when they look into his time outside of the military. Particularly with an accident that had occurred while he was out of the military. Everything suddenly flips. What we thought we knew we no longer know so we as an audience are left questioning okay if this is true then this can't be true and so now where are we and 50 is in the same position because as it turns out Kenner is still very much so a piece of shit but he's not the only piece of shit in this episode <laughs> You know who else is a piece of shit? Absolutely no one in this guest cast because they are all fantastic and we should take a closer look at them. Kenner was played by Lee Paul. This is his second of two episodes. We also saw him in Not That Much Different. Luke, the gas station attendant, was played by Marie McLeod. He appeared in episodes of The Monsters, The Donna Reed Show, Gidget, The Man from U.N.C.L.E., Ironside, The Virginian, Longstreet, Lassie, The Sixth Sense, Bonanza, Cannon, Mod Squad, Columbo, Adam-12, Matt Helm, The McLean-Stevenson Show, Fantasy Island, The Incredible Hulk, and Airwolf. He appeared in the movies Burt Rigby, You're a Fool, Borderline, The Big Fix, Cahill, U.S. Marshal, The Angry Breed, and The Strawberry Statement. And he appeared in the TV movies Death Sentence, Who is the Black Talia, Conspiracy of Terror, The Red Light Sting, and The Rockford Files, Friends and Foul Play. Nora was played by Miko Mayama. She appeared in episodes of I Spy, F Troop, Star Trek, Love American Style, The Courtship of Eddie's Father, The Beverly Hillbillies, Ironside, Kojak, Mannix, and M.A.S.H. She appeared in the movies... Batman Bolt, The Hawaiians, and Impasse. And she appeared in the TV movies, Amanda Fallon, and Cage Without a Key. Tosaki, the defense attorney, was played by Kwan Lim. This is his fifth of 25 episodes. The owner of the bar was played by Robert M. Luck. This is his sixth of 12 episodes. The judge was played by our friend Yankee Chang. This is his eighth of 17 episodes. And Chris, the other gas station attendant, was played by Dean Altier. This is his only credit. In an uncredited role, the army officer was played by Joe Moore. This is his first of 11 episodes. He also appeared in episodes of The Brian Keith Show, Tour of Duty, Magnum P.I., Jake and the Fat Man, and One West Waikiki. He also appeared in the movies Moonglow, Goodbye Paradise, and The Philadelphia Experiment. And he appeared in the TV movie The Islander. He also happened to be a well known news anchor in Hawaii. Our director, Alan Reisner, he directed. 13 episodes of Hawaii Five-O. He also directed 31 episodes of Climax, 8 episodes of Studio One, 3 episodes of The Untouchables, 4 episodes of Mr. Novak, 4 episodes of Ben Casey, 3 episodes of I Spy, 5 episodes of Branded, 5 episodes of Gunsmoke, 5 episodes of Felony Squad, 6 episodes of The Green Hornet, 3 episodes of Mannix, 8 episodes of Lancer, 3 episodes of Matt Lincoln, 5 episodes of The Interns, 5 episodes of Canon, 3 episodes of Moving On, 3 episodes of Black's Magic, 5 episodes of Sidekicks, 4 episodes of The Law and Harry McGraw, and 4 episodes of Murder, She Wrote. He also has directing credits for the movies Fury of the Dragon, Blade Rider Revenge of the Indian Nations, St. Louis Blues, and All Mine to Give. He has directing credits for the TV movies To Die in Paris, The Cliff, Your Money or Your Wife, Mary Jane Harper Cried Last Night, Cops and Robin, and The Love Tapes. And he has directing credits for the miniseries, Captains and Kings. And that is Skinhead. As I said, this one is a real tough one to watch. It's an unpleasant episode, but it's a really good episode in the sense of the way the narrative lulls the audience and gets you to that point of, okay, Kenner has been convicted, now what? Because we still have like 20 minutes left in the episode, 15, 20 minutes left in the episode. So where do we go from here? And then we get a nice couple of twists to finish off that episode. So structurally, narratively, it's a really great episode. It's just a really hard one to watch, given the content and the subject matter and the fact that nothing has changed in 50 years. So I'm absolutely going to say give this one a watch, but make sure you're fully prepared going in.
1: Lots of luck with your client, Mr. Tosaki. You're defending a real doll. Mr. McHarris, I'm all going to hear you. And you're in a lot of trouble. If you're the other man I think you are, one of those men is trying to frame me for murder. My so-called friends and associates—you can eliminate Felton, of course—he's dead. Look, let's get something straight, Mr. Hilliard. Nobody takes me under duress and gets away with it. Nobody. Duress. You're not here under duress, Mr. McGarrett. You're here to work.
0: Episode 19. While you're at it, Bring Me the Moon. Air date February 1st, 1972. Directed by Michael O'Hurley. This is his 16th of 36 episodes. And written by E. Arthur Keene. This is his 4th of 6 episodes. Steve gets a call at headquarters about a murder at billionaire Morgan Hilliard's estate. Dewey Felton has been shot dead. This is a big one. The guy calls back as the team is leaving, and Steve stops to take it, letting Danny and Chin Ho go ahead. But it's a deadline. Steve leaves late and ends up ambushed by six guys, one of whom was the voice on the phone. They don't want to tangle with him, but they've got their orders. Steve is convinced to go with them at gunpoint. They arrive at a yacht where Steve is decontaminated with some spray, and as the yacht leaves the harbor, he's introduced to Morgan Hilliard, professional recluse he wants him to find out which one of his friends and associates is trying to frame him for murder steve says that nobody takes him under duress and gets away with it hilliard says that he's not here under duress he's here to work meanwhile danny and chen ho show up at the hilliard estate to find three men a broken umbrella and a corpse by the pool It's the friends and associates of Morgan Hilliard, Mims, Byers, Tabernash, and the corpse of Dewey Felton. As the body is carried out, Che finds a bullet lodged in a statue that most likely came from a Colt. The living men said that they have the meeting and subsequently the shooting on tape. They're taking Hilliard to court because he's mentally unsound. He's a germaphobe of the highest caliber. He also digs auras. In the decontamination sauna, Che finds a couple of casings. As Danny goes to listen to the tape, Che asks where Steve is. Danny tells him to check in on him. While Hilliard tells Steve about his $200,000 a year associates turning on him in a court battle with $2.5 billion at stake, the associates in question find their positions and then play their tape. It's a fight about a steam car that uses natural gas, which will lower emissions. Hilliard plans to build it and have it out for sale in three years. The other men argue that it isn't practical. He's going to liquidate a lot of assets to make this happen. Hilliard says he'll buy them all out, but the other four guys say that they're taking over his shares on the grounds of his mental instability we hear hilliard get out of the pool and mims says he gave him the court summons at that point we hear hilliard tell them that he'll see them all in hell that's a threat right go into the sauna and then we hear the shots danny says that it sounded like a silencer was used they never saw him fire the gun or hold the gun because there was too much steam in the sauna and they were ducking for their lives but he might have had it in his robe pocket when he came out. Hilliard called his own police and left in his helicopter, not allowing the other men to call out until he left. Chin tells Danny that they can't find Steve, and Byer says that was the other name Hilliard used in the phone when he called for the helicopter. He said, pick up McGarrett. Hilliard tells Steve that he was a witness and he should question him. Steve won't do it without seeing the body in the scene, but Hilliard won't go back. People are icky. I can relate. Hilliard insists that he and Steve are on the same side, but Steve doesn't agree, what with the kidnapping and all. Steve wants Hilliard to come back, but Hilliard won't. He releases Steve to get on with his investigation, saying they'll be in touch through a third party. Steve tells Hilliard to keep his spies out of the way. Reporters swamp Danny's car, asking where Steve is, and then do the same to Steve when he finally arrives. While a guy named Custer uses binoculars and an electronic transmitter to conduct surveillance on Steve for Hilliard, Steve takes a look at the scene. They find six of the seven slugs, but they're missing the seventh and the murder weapon, which is most likely a Colt. Che brings out a similar model, which Chin says went out of production in 57. They've been working the ricochet marks and found only two casings in the sauna. The math ain't math in here. None of the men saw the gun fired or Hilliard with it, though it might have been in his pocket. And why the silence, sir? Because he didn't like noise? Was Hilliard trying to frame himself in the hopes that 5-0 would get him off? Steve has the associates come to the office and listen to the tape again. The first gunshot thump sounds different than the others. Mims pushes for Hilliard's arrest, but Steve says not to push too hard because he might not like the results. They've got the shooting on tape, but they also have statements like, I think, and no one saw shit. This case looks great in newspapers, but it's a flop in court. $2 billion is a great motive for a frame and for a murder. Mims spots the press waiting outside and tells Steve if he wants to play games, they'll play. He goes to the press outside claiming that McGarrett struck a deal with Hilliard, without outright saying so. The press jumps on Steve and he gives them nothing except that he has a meeting with the governor. He goes towards the governor's office with Custer following him and he ambushes Custer. Steve takes away his transmitting device and says he's going to get a warrant for Hilliard's arrest and he can turn himself in and clear his name in court like anyone else. He tells Custer to get it to him before he reads it in the paper. But at headquarters, Steve and the team are still puzzling out this bizarre shooting, trying to get the pieces to fit. This means polygraphs, reenactments, and forcing Hilliard back to the island. Oh my! At first glance, this episode looks pretty straightforward as it is a battle of one insanely wealthy unpleasant man versus a group of insanely wealthy unpleasant men over who's telling the truth. And that's very much part of it. But there's also like an elaborate scheme behind it that you don't realize until we get to a certain point in the episode. And I find that to be fabulous. You know me. I love my elaborate schemes and this one's pretty kind of elaborate. But it's low-key elaborate, like I said, because we don't really get to that until we get towards the end of the episode, towards the twist. So we actually start the episode with that cold call to Steve saying, Hey, Dewey Felton's dead. He's at Morgan Hilliard's estate. You should probably come and investigate. And Steve ends up getting separated from Danny and Chen because the guy apparently calls back. But then the line's dead and Jenny tries to figure out if they've been cut off. And so Steve leaves the building later. And this just works out perfectly because it is the one time Steve is not parked right in front of Iolani Palace and he has to go through all this parking lot full of cars to get to his car and he is ambushed by these six men who kind of open their car doors and block him in. One of them has a gun. He recognizes his voice as the man on the phone and he's like, yes, you have been basically invited to Morgan Hilliard's yacht. And it turns out that Morgan Hilliard is a recluse and he's a germaphobe of the highest caliber because Steve walks in to the interior of the yacht and he is sprayed with like a decontaminating mist. I don't know what's in it, but Steve full on inhales it and I imagine Hilliard has too. So I'm like, what kind of cancer do you get from that? What is in that mist? How much cancer are you getting from inhaling that in the name of cleanliness? I don't know. So it goes back and forth between Steve talking to Hilliard and Hilliard basically giving him his side that Dewey Felton and Mims Byers and Tabernash have all turned against him. And Felton was the one who instigated that. So he he's not really like heartbroken that the man is dead. But he feels that one of his other cohorts has framed him for this. And he wants Steve to find out who it is. Now, being a man of means, he just expects people to do as he asks because he has money. And that's what people do unfortunately he's talking to steve mcgarrett and steve mcgarrett does not work for anyone but the governor and god as we have well been established way back into the pilot episode when it was said that steve only takes orders from the governor and god so he's definitely not going to be bossed around by hilliard and steve is pretty straightforward in saying that i'm going to find out who did this if you did it i'm going to nab you if one of your cohorts did it i'm going to nab them that's how this works now, meanwhile, we have Danny and Danny, mainly Danny, uh, because you know, ends up going to look for Steve and we have Mims doing most of the talking because he's a lawyer explaining what had happened at this meeting. And between both Hilliard and Mims, we get the motive for this killing, which is this steam car. According to Hilliard, it will reduce emissions by like 92% or something like that. And it will run on natural gas, which kind of negates the whole thing because of how much damage can be done to the environment just extracting the natural gas. But anyway, he is all on board with this and he is willing to liquidate a whole bunch of assets just to get this car in production and for sale in three years. His associates are totally against this. And they believe that due to his germophobia, his kind of alternative medicine attitudes, that he's obviously mentally unstable. And there's two and a half billion dollars on the line here. So Mims plays this recording of the meeting because they've been recording all of the meetings as evidence of his, of Hilliard's mental instability. And he explains that Hilliard was in the pool, which is not an actual pool, but it's, it's Filled with germ away. I don't know. It's some sort of decontamination stuff.
1: It's me against the four of you. Is it? All right, I'm buying you out, every one of you. You can't buy if we don't sell. We're keeping our shares and taking over yours, Morgan. Just how do you figure that? Well, we've been telling you every day for the last five days. You're out of your mind, old man. I'm therefore, incapable of managing your own affairs. I'll bring him out of his puddle. I showed him this. It's a summons for Mr. Hilliard will appear in court. And guess what it was. Got pretty angry. It came out. I'll see you in hell first, all of you. There. Yeah. Is that a threat or isn't it? He threw the paper at me. you he turned here. You can hear him walking. Went into the sauna. Listen now, here it comes. You can hear the shots. That's it. The one that had felt it.
0: He says he'll see you all in hell, which they're like, isn't that a threat? And I'm like, sounds to me like scheduling a later meeting. He goes into this sauna, which is not an actual sauna, it's again a decontamination sauna. And that's when the shots rang out. They couldn't see anything because of the steam in the sauna, and they were also running for their lives. They never saw Hilliard with the gun, though he could have had it in his robe pocket when he left. And Danny does point out that it sounded like there was a silencer used, which is curious and we'll get back to that. So it's about this time that they realize that Steve is missing and Steve at the time is, is actually getting ready to be released from Hilliard's yacht. And Steve maintains, he wants him to come back to Oahu with him, saying that if he's innocent, they'll clear his name, that, that he needs to answer for this like anybody would answer for this. And he won't come back because there are people, which is very relatable. He said that he gave up like an entire company, which was like worth millions of dollars just to avoid going to court. He is that people avoidant, which you know what? I can feel you on that level. I too, from years of customer service work, am that avoidant of people. So he's not going back, but he says that he'll be keeping an eye on Steve and Steve tells him to keep his spies out of his way. And so Steve finally joins up with Danny and Chin and Jay, and they look at this crime scene.
1: We recovered six of the seven slugs, Steve. How's that for persistence? Great. I mean, we need the seven. <laughs> now that's persistence. And the murder weapon. That's Chinese persistence. <laughs> <laughs> what about these, Jay? Well, we have six spent slugs. They weigh 250 grams each. Caliber 45. Rifling markings are identical. Left hand twist with a pitch of one turn and 16 inches. Six lands, six grooves. Okay, so we've got a Colt automatic. Right, as a matter of fact, one like this. Old government issue. Now that's the A1. Went out of production in 1957. But I remember the Schofield Arms Museum. We had that machine for the silencer, <laughs> but they didn't go for that at first. Well, I do. Thanks, Jen.
0: So it looks very much like Hilliard shot at them from the sauna, but why would he use a silencer?
1: Maybe the guy hates noise. <laughs> yeah, maybe.
0: That's very strange. How did he police all of his brass but two in... According to the Ricochets, it would have had to come from the direction of the sauna. There was nobody else on the grounds. The place is like Fort Knox because he has his own security force and they're the ones that whisked him away after the shooting. So Steve posits a the theory. Well, perhaps he's trying to make it look like someone is framing him so Five O will clear them. I love this idea and I sincerely hope that there is an episode like this at some point because that is brilliant. But that's not what is happening here. So they've reviewed this recording multiple times, and Steve points out that the first shot sounds different from the rest of them. There's a thump to it. And when he plates this for the associates in 5 headquarters, they agree. It sounds like a thump. They don't see the significance of this. And Steve isn't exactly sure of the significance of this yet, but he knows that there is a significance. And Mims is very, very lawyery and very uptight about this. And he's like, why haven't you arrested Hilliard? We all saw it. We were the victims here. Why are you questioning us? And Steve lays out the evidence and says, sure, we have the shooting on tape, but we also have statements like, I think nobody saw him with the gun. Nobody saw him actually fire the gun. You're not sure. And there's two and a half billion dollars at stake here. That's a great motive for a murder. It's a great motive for a frame. The case looks good in the papers, but not in court. It's a flop. They just don't have enough solid evidence that can't be argued away. He tells Mims, when Mims pushes on this, he's like, you might not like me getting an arrest warrant because your name might be on it. And he takes that as a threat. And when he sees that there's reporters outside, because they've been harassing Danny, they've been harassing Steve, he decides to use them. And he goes down and he says without saying that Steve was absent, that Steve may have met with Hilliard. They don't know if a deal was struck, but he knows that they're being, they're the victims, but they're being interrogated like they're suspects. And he leaves that in the reporter's laps, And so the reporters jump on Steve, and Steve gives them absolutely nothing, which is fabulous.
1: Garrett, how about your side of it? You'll hear it in court. If it ever gets in court, right? How how do you bring in a billionaire? Isn't that something like arresting the president? Is that what you two talked about on the yacht, going through the motions and things like that? Or was it more like, uh, who's going to be our next governor? Well, I'll tell you something, gentlemen. When it comes to governors, all I know is that I've got an appointment with the incumbent in about two minutes. So if you'll excuse me.
0: And then he goes towards the governor's office and obviously Custer has been following him this whole time. And that's when he ambushes Custer. And he says, listen, my guy, you're shit at your job and you need to take this back to Hilliard. And he, he talks into his little microphone and says, I'm going to wish issue a warrant for your arrest for murder. You need to turn yourself in or I'm going to come get you. It's pretty simple. Those are your choices. And he tells him to get it to Hilliard before he reads in the papers. Meanwhile, Steve is questioning everything about the shooting. Because, like I said, the math ain't math in here. There's just too much stuff that's just not adding up. So he subjects Mims, Byers, and Tabernash to polygraphs. Mims is willing to take the polygraph because it'll get Steve off his back for a little while. Byers refuses because he is an engineer. He knows how these things work. He wants nothing to do with it. But he does admit, without the lie detector that he can't be certain because he was the one who initially said he thought he saw the gun in Hilliard's robe pocket. He's now saying, I can't be sure that I saw that. So at least he's admitting that. They tried to put Tabernash on the box and he is a friggin' mess. He doesn't even know what date is, which I can relate to because I rarely do either, but he's just like an emotional blob. You can't get an actual reading on him. And to be fair, none of this is admissible in court. The refusals aren't admissible. The actual polygraph results aren't admissible. It's basically just, as the reason why Mims does it, is it will get Steve off his back. So while they're looking at this scene, they realize, okay, we need to find the other casings. We need to figure out why their casings are missing, but we need to find the seventh bullet. They found six. They need to find seven. And they need to find this murder weapon, which they know is a cold. Che talked ballistics to me, baby. We were talking lands and grooves, left-hand twists. I was enamored. So with all of this crime scene analysis, we get our second reenactment. So we already had one reenactment with Mims, Byer, and Tabernash for Danny. We now have another reenactment, and Steve does this specifically for the press. And he brings them all to the crime scene which still has smatterings of the 70s blood because, oh my gosh, it'll be up on the blog, the actual corpse scene, because it is 70s blood and it looks like someone spilled their strawberry smoothie all over the place. It's just that bright, brilliant red. It's just magnificent. I love 70s blood. It never looks appropriate. It's so garish and and glorious. I love it. But Steve brings the press in. He has a similar weapon with a silencer. He has the colt with a silencer that Che had had.
1: All right, you've been needling me for a press conference, gentlemen, so here it is. Brief and to the point. I suppose you all know what this is. Is that loaded? What do you think? Listen, I know you're a little sore at us, uh, McGarrett, but uh, you wouldn't. Uh... Wouldn't what? It's funny, McGarrett. It's not over yet. Come here, I want to show you something. I want all you other gentlemen to see this, too. Okay, here's the gun. There's seven spent shells in there. Go in and find five of them and break down the gun. You've got seven seconds.
0: And they're like, we can. Like, well, if Morgan Hillier can do it, why can't you? If you're going to print something about the story, you print how he did that. Because that is one thing that has come from the tape analysis. There is not enough time from when Hilliard went into the sauna. There was the shooting. Hilliard came out of the sauna that he could have found five casings and broken down the weapon and got rid of the silencer and the gun. And it's a great way for Steve to play the game that Mims was playing with Mims turning the press on Steve. Now Steve has turned on the press and presented them with a very juicy bite of the story that is obviously going to get back to Hilliard. And when it does, Steve again tells him, you need to come back. You need to face up to this. I need you at the scene. And Hilliard eventually does come back. And it's great because Steve goes into his office. It's late at night. It's dark. And he pauses and you hear something. And he turns on the light and there's Hilliard Lysoling the blinds. Steve says, I knew it was you. And he's like, How? And he's like, I could hear you lysoling my blinds. So Hilliard agrees to go back and recreate the crime in time with the tape. So Hilliard goes into the sauna, and then there's the shots, and he comes out looking very confused. And he's like, You're right. That first shot sounds different, but he can't exactly explain how it was different. It sounded closer, but not. He can't quite explain it, but Steve thinks he knows what he's talking about. And it turns out that, yes, this first weird-sounding thump from the first shot is significant. And it leads us to that seventh bullet, which in turn leads 5-0 to the killer. You know what else it leads to? This cast cast, and they're fabulous. Let's take a closer look at them. Morgan Hilliard was played by Barry Sullivan. He was Ken Thurston on The Man Called X, Captain David Scott on Harbormaster, Pat Garrett on The Tall Man, Ben Pride on The Road West, and Senator Paxson on Rich Man, Poor Man, Book 2. He also appeared in episodes of Route 66, Ben Casey, Perry Mason, Mission Impossible, Bonanza, The Man From U.N.C.L.E., That Girl, The Virginian, The Immortal, Dan August, McLeod, Mannix, Night Gallery, The Sixth Sense, Kung Fu, Harry O., Ironside Cannon, Barnaby Jones, The Bionic Woman, The Streets of San Francisco, Quincy Me, Fantasy Island, Lucan, Charlie's Angels, The Love Boat, Little House on the Prairie, and Vegas. He also appeared in the movies Oh God, Grand Jury, the Human Factor, Earthquake, The Candidate, Shark, An American Dream, Planet of the Vampires, My Blood Runs Cold, Pyro, The Thing Without a Face, Julie, Playgirl, Cry of the Hunted, Tension, The Great Gatsby, Rainbow Island, and Lady in the Dark. And he appeared in the TV movies, The Price, Canon, Savage, Letters from Three Lovers, Hurricane, No Room to Run, And Judgment Day. Byers was played by Ed Flanders. This is his fifth of seven episodes. Mims was played by H.M. Wyant. This is his third of three episodes. We also saw him in Three Dead Cows at Makapu'u, which also featured Ed Flanders. Tabernash was played by Milton Seltzer. This was his third of six episodes. We also saw him in Strangers in Our Own Land and Trouble in Mind. Duke was played by Herman Wedemeyer. This is his official start of his run as Duke. Gilman was played by Sandy Mosk. This is his only credit. Babson was played by Norman Wright. This is his first of seven episodes. He also appeared in episodes of The Mackenzies of Paradise Cove, Fathers and Sons, and Island Son. He appeared in the movies Ghost of the China Sea, Twilight for the Gods, and Broadway Jungle. And he appeared in the TV movie Inherit the Wind. Custer was played by William C. Mount. This is his third of three episodes. We also saw him in And They Painted Daisies on His Coffin and The Ransom. Garland was played by Fred Ball. This is his second of eight episodes. We also saw him in Is This Any Way to Run a Paradise? Calhoun was played by Steve Merrick. This is his second of three episodes. We also saw him in Last Eden. And Pittman was played by Bill LeGrand. This is his only credit. And that is, while you're at it, Bring Me the Moon. I really enjoyed this episode because, again, it's one of those things that could be straightforward, but is not straightforward. It's obvious that there is something going on here. Someone is lying. Someone's not telling the truth. Someone is scheming. But it's not until we start finding where those puzzle pieces fit that we can actually put it all together. And when we do get to that point of discovering where the seventh bullet is, where they find it, which leads us to the killer, that's when we get into the real scheme part, the real grand scheme part of the episode. Because you don't see that coming and then it happens and you're just like that is out there it is magnificent it's, a, it's definitely a bit extra
1: I'm all for it
0: so yeah this is, this is a good episode and you should definitely give it a watch
1: I'm extremely uncomfortable in your presence uh, to tell you the truth I'm not exactly overjoyed to be in yours either
0: And that is episode 48 of Bookum Dano. Two really great episodes of you think you know, but you don't. Like I said, Skinhead is a tough one to watch. While you're at it, Bring Me the Moon is a lot more fun, but they're still both really good. It's just one episode, you're just gonna get more shenanigans than the other. And that's okay. They can't all be good time fun episodes. But you are good time, fun listeners. Thank you so much for listening. I always appreciate your ears. I apologize again for the background noise. It was absolutely ridiculous and made for a really, really messy recording. But that's why God invented editing. If you want to find me online, you can do that by going to aka It is the home of Bookum Diano. You can also check out my blog, Kikiwritesabouts.com. Be sure to check out the Patreon links while you're there. Nothing says love like cash. And if you want to be exposed to my greedy capitalistic desires in real time, you can still somehow do that by following me on Twitter at KikiWrites. So don't be a piece of shit of any variety and avoid people at all costs. Until next time. Aloha.